got a special episode today. I am speaking with Carson Block, the activist short seller of Muddy Waters Research. Carson, great to have you here. Welcome back. Thanks, Jack. Good to be here. It's my pleasure, Carson. So you publish under Muddy Waters Research, and you also have a fund, Muddy Waters Capital, where you invest alongside that. I am really glad you're here to discuss your most recent uh, public short, which is of the Blackstone Mortgage Trust, BXMT. And this is a uh, mortgage trust. So it, you know, it, it makes money by owning loans and then funding those loans by paying a little bit less. So like a bank, it harvests that spread, but it's not a bank. Before I ask you what drew you to short in this space, can you just give your overall sense before you, you shorted this company or before you, you, you encounter the idea, what has your experience been like in this world of non-bank financial companies where they're not a bank, but they have a somewhat similar bank-like business and they're in that institutional finance world? Like what 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 is your impression of that world been? Well, it's hard to generalize because a lot of times when financials get in trouble, it's because they've been too aggressive. Usually, you know, they've they found some magic way to grow their their exposure, you know, their lending book faster than everybody else, but while taking better risks than everybody else. You know, that's usually the fairy tale that you hear. And, you know, they're effectively, typically they're saying this time it's different. And ultimately it never turns out to be different. Now, that's not exactly what the issue is here with Blackstone. So it's not that, you know, they were being more aggressive than everybody else. It's just that because they are lenders into the commercial real estate space, they have a decent amount of office exposure, it's the perfect storm. And with rates having risen at what was probably, you know, for the most, for the most part, most people would not have said that the, the speed and the, and the extent to which rates were, were, you know, were hiked by the central banks was foreseeable. So it was kind of a black swan type of scenario here. And to be clear, unlike a really, you know, unlike a financial institution that's really out over its skis, you know, we don't think that the creditors to the mortgage trust are at serious risk here. I mean, part of that's also because we'd expect that Blackstone's mothership to bail out the creditors, but the equity the equity we we do think is you know not just at risk but we do think that the equity will ultimately take significant losses being that it's at the bottom of the capital stack here how bad do you think it's it's going to be i i mean in your report which we can share you said that you think there will be a liquidity crisis can you can you arrive share how you arrived at the conclusion as well as perhaps why blackstone why blackstone mortgage trust and not you know one, one of the many other mortgage REITs that is long commercial real estate debt? Sure. So first of all, why Blackstone versus other mortgage REITs? Well, the really the way that we came across Blackstone was we were talking to a credit investor with whom we speak every now and then, and they had come across these, uh, there are three CLOs that Blackstone's mortgage REIT has sponsored. So Blackstone's book has BXMT's book has 185 loans. Now, 37 of those loans are also in CLOs. And we understand from Blackstone's investor relations that those 37 CLO loans 
are representative of the U.S. loan book for the mortgagee. And the U.S. loan book is 64% of the loan book. So the reason that we had this conversation with this credit investor was they were looking at the CLOs and you can get granular data. You see who the borrower of the you know, for each of these loans in the CLOs is. Uh, you see what the net operating income on, on a TTM basis of the property is, what you know the debt maturities are and the amounts outstanding. And so when they were looking at what the NOI, the a net operating income of these properties yields versus the debt, the amount of debt. So, you know, NOI divided by debt, it was well inside of what the cost of this debt is absent these rate caps or rate swaps that we'll get into in a moment. Mm -hmm. So this is not to say that Blackstone is the worst or most exposed mortgage read out there. It's just that we got a granular, we were able to get granularity into the loan book because absent that, if you're just looking at the 10Ks, you don't see, for the most part, you don't have enough information to figure out who the borrowers are, what the properties are, et cetera. So that's the case with these, you know, with other REITs. I mean, we didn't, you know, the way that we work because we are only speaking four to six times a year and we take, you know, a few months to work on each project you know, it wasn't like, oh, well, that's cool. Let's put it to the side and go see if we can find, you know, even worse mortgage REITs because, you know, we're, as far as we're concerned, we have a live project here. This is something that's trading here and we think is ultimately worth a lot less, again, speaking about the equity. So let's go, you know, now that we've convinced ourselves, we need to build a case that we can go public and is hopeful, go public with and is hopefully compelling. Now, getting to the, the, actual, the actual reasons we're short, and I want to point out that with, you know, with, the, with the overall office exposure in, you know, in Blackstone's book, you know, Blackstone, we're not sure what the real level of exposure is. I mean, Blackstone claims that it's a little bit north of a third. I think they say about 36%, but there's also mixed-use property, right? So... That's often office with some retail, maybe office with some condos. And, you know, we, so, we, you know, we have seen a few properties where they're classified in mixed use, but they're 85% office, 90% office. So we're not sure how widespread this game is of kind of taking, you know, trying to, you know, say that stuff that's effectively office is not office, but it's an industrial building. Right. Yeah. Well, they, they did this also with uh, biotech there where they created a new category for, you know, biotech office. It's, you know, it's basically office, but we don't really, you know, we don't really need to have a strong view on office to get to where we, we did. Because if you're looking at the CLOs and they are, you know, if they are representative of the U.S. loan book, you know, X, some construction loans, then there's a real problem because as we analyze the 37 loans, you know, we, we divided them into three groups. So group C is the group that absent rate caps or rate swaps can, the cash flow, the NOI divided by the debt, does cover the cost of interest. Now, when these companies, when these developers borrow from, or sponsors, I should say, because these are not, you know, a lot of these were acquisitions of existing properties. When the sponsors borrow from Blackstone, these are interest-only loans, 
And so the way that they're structured is it's a three-year initial maturity plus a one and one. So they can renew at the end of three years for another one year and then at the end of that for another uh, another year. Now, apparently, the well, you know, in normal times, the ability to renew by the borrower, the borrower has to meet certain certain tests. So in normal times, Blackstone would not necessarily allow an extension of a property that was struggling. Now, because these are interest-only loans, they have to be refied on the back end, basically. So whether you know whether the you know the loan is going to be paid off you know at year three or they extend it to year five, it has to be taken out at some point. There has to be an ability to refinance the loan. Now, here you know here's the here's basically the you know the way that this loan book breaks down. So in from the CLOs, so there's so Group C can cover the the interest even at these higher rates. So there's the way the rates, the way the way the interest expense works, it's floating rate. So that's actually a key thing to understand here. Not only are these interest rate loans, but they're floating rate. So there's a base rate, which is now SOFR, secured overnight funding rate. It used to be LIBOR, plus a spread. And so the average spread is, yeah, I think, 330 basis points. And SOFR right now is 530 basis points. So your typical borrower would be paying, in this instance, about 850 bips, 8.5%. So there's a group that's group B, and now group B can cover SOFR at these levels, but can't cover SOFR and the spread. And now that group makes up close to half of the loans by by number, I think 45% by number and 49% by value in the CLOs. And SOFR is, it's very similar to the Fed funds rate. So, you know, controlled by the Federal Reserve. And it, I'm going to take it, it's 5.3, 5.4% now probably, right? Yeah, right. So it's it's five it's 5.3%. I mean, it's a, it's a market rate that prices off of the, you know, off of the, of the off the Fed funds rates. I mean, that's the reference for everything. But so, so for, so basically, so for is up there at 5.3. So group B, they can cover, but they can't cover, the spreads, which again, average 330 bips. Now, group A, which is a little north of a quarter of the loans by number and close to 30% by, by value, they can't even cover SOFR, let alone the actual, the actual spreads. So, so they're making less money than the risk-free rate of interest. So basically, they had a cap rate of below 5.3%, which made a lot of sense when interest rates were at zero, not so much now. Right. So what and now the reason this hasn't really shown up yet is Blackstone, when it executed these loans, it required borrowers to take out what they what Blackstone calls caps, but they're basically interest rate swaps. So floating for fixed swaps. So if you're a borrower, if you borrowed in 2021 when SOFR was, I mean, almost zero, it was like five basis points, I think, for most of the year. So your your total loan cost is maybe 330 bips at that at that point because you're effectively just paying spread. Mm-hmm. Now you take out a rate swap and that basically ensured that even as rates went up, basically you were well Blackstone was getting paid that difference between a SOFR of 0 and a SOFR of 530 basis points. And the borrower wasn't paying it. I mean they were paying it but they were paying it with the benefit of the gains from this contract that they had entered. And the contract is probably shorter duration than the maturity of the loan. 
Well, no. So Blackstone required that the swaps equal the initial maturity, and then every time there's an extension, oh, okay. that that there be that there's another one year swap put in place. But basically, when when you look at what happened in 21, there was a huge amount of borrowing, right? I mean, just so much liquidity went into the system. So many sponsors bought valuations, you know, soared because cap rates went way down, and those loans are coming due in size. So the thing is, with Blackstone, about, you know, we understand about five to four to five percent of the interest that it receives right now on its on its existing loan book is already picking PIK payable in kind. So they've already said to you know, said to borrowers, or they've agreed with borrowers, okay, just you know, basically accrue the interest in, you know, issue us these IOUs. And we'll and we'll get made whole. You know, we'll figure it out later. We think that this is just the tip of the iceberg, and and also the the other reason that it's only been you know five to six percent of the interest they receive is pick is because sponsors last year, and this is something that Blackstone, you know, it, it quasi responded to us. It issued a, an updated fact sheet, and the mm-hmm. fact sheet seemed to, you know, try try to semi try to address the issues that we raised. I mean, we think it was. You know, it only addressed them in a misleading way. But what you can what you can see from the fact sheet is that a number of sponsors last year did dig into their pockets and contribute additional equity so that they could make these loan payments. You know, will that continue? I mean, for how many years will those sponsors do that? And now this is where you get into the realm of things that are not really knowable, but a lot of it depends on their views of of interest rates. As well as as well as the market for their properties. Now, if you think rates are going to stay somewhat higher for longer, you probably aren't. You're not going to be as willing to kick in, you know, for a second year in a row or a third year in a row. Plus, the 2021 vintage, which is the largest vi- vintage we believe, is about to. That's going to start coming due next year. And those loans, I think a lot of those loans are really underwater because. You have to. You now have to look at that that second component here that I talked about, and that's the refinancing. Mm-hmm. So what has happened is that the collateral values on a lot of these loans have have fallen. Now, so the values of the actual assets of the properties have fallen. Now that's due to two factors here. Number one, there's been an issue with the cash flow of these properties, the net operating income, especially for office. Okay, there's been a structural shift in demand for office space. Demand for office space is lower than it used to be. You know, I mean, whether work from home is your fan or not, that's just the reality. Okay, so NOIs are lower, plus operating costs are higher. And one of the things that we've since publishing come to come to hear is that insurance costs are getting are get are much higher now. And this might be more of a factor in multifamily than in a commercial or than in than an office rather. But you know, the, but operating costs are up across the board. So especially for office properties, revenues are down, and they're going to go down more as more of these leases expire. And you can see you can see this because if you look at uh, if you look at space that's on the market, you'll see that there are a number of buildings. There are sub there are opportunities to sublease. So you've got tenants that basically say, "Hey, we're not using all the space or any of this space, and we're we're willing to let it out 
And, you know, so when their leases burn off, presumably, or their leases expire, those leases don't get removed. So that's what we call shadow vacancy. So when you look at shadow vacancy, there really is an overhang here in terms of demand for office in particular. So, you know, revenues going down with office, operating costs across all property categories are going up. Now, cap rates, so cap rates have gone up. That's because real estate, it's, it's basically like a bond, commercial real estate. So as the market rate, as market interest rates have gone up and you can, you know, earn, you know, four and change, 5% a year owning T-bills, well, why do you go and buy an illiquid asset like a building unless you can earn more than that? So the prices of these of the assets, even if you held the cash flow steady, those prices have to go down. But because cash flow is going down on a lot of them, now you have a real problem. And so the way that we, so when we looked at these groups, you know, when we looked at group B, so group B can pay SOFR at these levels, can't pay the, can't pay the spread. We estimate that the average impairment of value of these, of these properties in group B is almost 20%. And I'll, in a moment, I'll explain how we get there. When we look at Group A, which can't even pay SOFR, the average impairment in the CLOs, we estimate is 50%. So the problem is, in terms of getting refinanced here, you know, lenders never loan you know, at 100% loan-to-value. They're generally going to say, hey, well, you know, we'll lend 60 to 70%, 65% loan-to-value. Well, the Vs, if the Vs have dropped by 20%, how do you get a loan, and especially in the group where it's dropped by, V is dropped by 50%, you know, per our estimates, how do you get a loan to take out the existing loan? I mean, you can't get a loan in that size. And, you know, so, so and it's important to understand how we got there also on the estimates. So we subscribed to a leading real estate analytics and data service, commercial real estate uh, service. And so that also, so what, what they do there is, they provide an estimated cap rate at which the, each property will trade. So that cap rate, presumably, you know, it's, it's a function of market rates, but it's also a function of what's going on in that particular local market and factors with that, you know, with that property, like the age of the property, et cetera. And so when we look at these estimated cap rates, we're saying, okay, so now the estimated cap at which this will trade, you know, is say 7.5%. We have the we have the trailing twelve months NOI that's in the CLO that's in the CLO data. It's also in the real estate data as well. So you say, okay, so if this NOI has to equal a yield of seven and a half percent for this particular property, that tells you the value of this property. And oops, the loan what they owe on the property is more than the value of the property. Now, some sponsors will put in cash. Because they say, hey, you know, they're, they're going to think, hey, this will work itself out eventually. Rates are going to come down. Market's going to recover. But some sponsors are going to say, you know, this is an older building. We've got a lot of deferred maintenance CapEx that we, that we have to put into it. This is ugly. And we're just going to say to Blackstone and, you know, or other lenders, I mean, this is going to be a market-wide phenomenon. Yeah, that, we're not putting in more money. So, you know, I mean, you either either agree to you know so, you know somehow lower the the loan principal or take the keys like we'll we'll hand you the keys so that's the problem we see that eventually as these you know as these loans mature especially the 21 vintage of loans mature and the rate caps 
are going to be are going to be off and borrowers are going to be stressed. I mean, what is Blackstone Mortgage Trust's capacity going to be or tolerance going to be, you know, to 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 let loans pick without cutting the dividends? And, you know, in part and parcel, that is what will sponsors be willing to kick in? So we don't have answers to those questions. But, you know, the way that we look at it is for Group B, Group B is not able to cover the loan, the the cost of the loans, unless SOFR is at three and a half percent. Group A, and that's on average, Group A is not able to cover it until SOFR is at 50 basis points. You know, like, I mean, three and a half percent. Yeah, we'll probably see SOFR there at some point in the not too, too distant future. But again, that's, you know, that's just breaking even. Then that, that ignores CapEx and other drains on, on cash flows. So I think you had a percentage of the percentage of the loans in the CLOs owned by Blackstone uh, Mortgage Trust that were either in A or B. So they either couldn't pay their loans, in, including the spread, or they couldn't even pay the risk-free rate, let alone the spread. What was that percentage of the CLOs? And then based on the assumption that those CLO, the loans in the CLOs are representative of the loans in all of BX7T, I mean, you could say that those are the loans in BX7T, but what, what is that percentage roughly? So for for borrowers that can't pay the can't even pay SOFR, let alone the spread, that's a little bit north. That's close to a quarter of the borrowers and the value of the loans. Now, for borrowers who can pay SOFR at these levels but can't cover the spread, that's almost half. So combined, you're looking at about 73% of the borrowers in the CLOs, I think 75% by value, that cannot make uh, their interest payments at these rates. So close to three quarters of borrowers in the CLOs can't pay their bills, basically. Absent, right. Absent these rate swaps or okay. putting, but in, but when you look at the, when you look at the properties and what the cash flow of the properties are, they're unable to support these, the debt service at these levels. Hey everyone, we're about to get back in the action, but before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally-focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. Talk to me about those interest rate swaps. Let's say, you know, so SOFR went from 0 to 5.3%. Let's just say for easy math, 3% spread. I know it's a little bit more. That entire 530 basis points rise is protected. So these, these borrowers are only paying 300 basis points. They're only paying the spread. 
describe a situation where the interest rate cap falls off or it it matures and they you know should be putting on the interest rate cap but don't and describe the situations what what you found and then also <clears throat> sorry what blackstone when they they responded although they said that basically 93% have been replaced with new interest rate caps and new new rate caps have a 4% weighted average strike price versus a 3.2 strike price before right so what happens then is if you so right now if your loan if your loan matures and you're going to extend it you go and you execute another floating for fixed swap with a counterparty you know presumably a commercial bank but if you did that at this level you basically be swapping away risk that SOFR increases from 530 basis points where it is presently. So you were already, you, you, your insurance policy, SOFR going from zero to 530, well, that just matured along with the maturity of your loan because you took out a three-year rate swap. So now you're exposed to that. So you can swap away your exposure of the loan, of the base rate going up further, but you're still, you're still on the hook now for the higher base rate because your swap your swap expired. So the you know so in terms of Blackstone talking about its weighted averages, I mean there's that begs a number of questions, but when you say the weighted average is 4%, well that would imply that there were a lot of that a lot of the maturities that have already occurred and then have been extended that that happened before rates really peaked. So, I mean, if you have a weighted average, if you have a weighted average swap rate of 400 basis points, I mean, that implies that those that those new swaps were put in place when SOFR was at 400 basis points and not 530. So the, the real problem here, we think, is the 2021 vintage, which, again, that's coming up for its initial maturity next year, you know, three years after 2021. And that that looks to be the largest vintage in Blackstone's portfolio. And it makes sense because, you know, if you just rewind to 2021, there was so much liquidity in the system, so much money chasing investments. And when you think about what happens when you have a large amount of money chasing a relatively fixed number of outlets, of investment outlets, okay, that's going to drive valuations up. And that's regardless of what's happening with the rate environment. Now, obviously, when base rates go from zero to 500 bips, that's going to impact the, the values of cash flowing assets. But even if you took that, the rate changes out of the picture, just when you, know, when you have all of that money chasing that, you know, that, that relatively fixed pie of investments, there will be overpayments. And this is actually something that you know, we we're starting to think now this we we haven't done a lot of work in the multifamily space. Now, certainly a, a real portion of Blackstone's loan book is multifamily. We're suspecting that for especially for sponsors who purchased projects in those years of, you know, late 20 through early 22, that there was a lot of overvaluation there, not just based on the delta in you know in rates between then and now. So those so yeah these these are factors that are going to we think you know significantly hit the values or have hit the values of the collateral 
and greatly impacts the borrower's ability to refinance and take out these interest-only loans that Blackstone's extended. Okay, so when you say the new average swap rate is 4%, does, does that mean that they are on average paying a base rate of 4% plus the 330? So they're paying 770. So I guess, it, you, you, you know, it, it, in a theoretical world, let's say a, a model of everyone was hedged perfectly, everyone put in a swap when interest rates were at zero. So they pay, they paid 0% of the increase in interest rates. So they, they were only paying the spread, 330. And now they have to pay the spread plus the rise in rates, 860. In terms of basis points, so 3.2 strike price to 4%, does that mean that they're, you know, instead of their risk rate will go up by 530, it will go up by 80 basis points? Those were like for like swaps that were, you know, were capped at three at 320. So these would be older vintage loans and then have since matured and gone to, and now they're capping at four and they capped at 400, like during this, this rate cycle. Yeah, I mean, the the incremental exposure, I mean, that would imply also that those sponsors invested at times in which the valuations were a lot less frothy. But the key here is also Blackstone's disclosure that last year, sponsors did kick in additional equity. If you add up the proportion of the book that's picking, as well as the proportion that disclosed in the fact sheet where sponsors had to kick in additional equity, I think you're looking at north of 10% of the loan book. And again, the 2021 vintage has not yet matured. So when we looked at the fact sheet, you know, we're looking at it, we're like, yeah, that's actually pretty ominous. You know, that doesn't look good. I mean, I want to say it's, it adds up to maybe 12%, but, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Cause like I said, I'm not, I'm not fresh, but you know, I think we were looking at roughly 10 to 12% if you analyze those numbers of the loan book have already had problems. And I think the, I think that we're going to see maturities. I think the 21 vintage is about 9 billion out of 23 billion in, in total loan books. So North of 40% is about to hit its maturity and have the rate caps expire. And, you know, this, and this is, you know, these are properties that, argue, you know, in a vacuum, we're overvalued anyway. And certainly with higher rates, the collateral values are probably significantly impaired. So if you already have 10% of your book in trouble, another 40 some odd percent, that's more exposed than any other part of your book has been so far, that's maturing for the first time. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't bode well. So how do you see this uh, playing out? And that I think you, you painted a pretty vivid picture of the deterioration that you perceive on the asset side. But I, I think you would agree that, you know, often like the reason Silicon Valley Bank is, is with us here, it is no longer with us is because of, uh, you know, the, the toxic combination of, of the, there being a bank run and liability, short term liabilities being pulled. I think the private credit and the pri- you know, people who are, you know, in, in that Blackstone holiday video would, would say is that, the, it can be quite supportive when you have long-term liabilities financing long-term assets. In other words, you know, how can there be a bank run on, on BXMT? Oh, okay, right. So the, the, liquidity, the liquidity problems that they could have. So yeah. first of all, they have, I think, $2.7 billion in unfunded loan commitments. So these are generally for construction loans. And they have only $1.5 billion in borrowing capacity. So already there's there's an issue here 
they will, so in order for them to fund those, those construction loans, again, those are mostly construction loans, if not entirely construction loans, in order for them to fund those loans, they need loans repaid to them. But we're already, you know, we've already covered how it's going to be difficult for a lot of these borrowers to refinance the loans, number one. You know, they also need cash flow from, you know, the loans that are not yet maturing. But as we're talking about, there can, you know, there are going to be some issues with that. And, you know, in terms of will Blackstone be able to increase the size of its credit facilities? Well, the issue there is that it has lenders and its lenders require, as a general matter, that the collateral values, that the assets against which Blackstone is lending be you know, at least 80 or, you know, 80% of the, you know, of the loan book. And the problem is now with, you know, group A, we think 50% below, you know, below what they owe. Group B, about 20% below what they owe. So right at that 80% threshold that, you know, they could already be in breach of, of those covenants. Blackstone could already be in breach of those covenants with their lenders. Now, and so, would those covenants be on the like twelve point eight billion dollars of secured debt, which is, I think, the highest in the stack? So the the debt that Blackstone itself that the Blackstone itself owes, yes, I think that's on the. I mean, the you know, so we don't have in we don't have insight into the individual loan agreements, but what we understand as a general matter from the company from IR is that the covenant is eighty percent. I think it's reasonable to extrapolate that if you went back a few years ago. Nobody saw, you know, especially when, you know, a lot of these loans are made in 21, you know, like people thought that work from home was temporary and, you know, and everybody come back, come back to the office. Nobody saw the magnitude and speed of these rate increases. So at that point in time, there probably wasn't that much consideration given to, you know, well, how would we, you know, like really, if we, if we feel that if we as lenders to Blackstone feel that the values of the assets are you know, below 80 percent, you know, how do we, you know, how do we determine that? I mean, I'm sure there's probably some sort of, you know, mechanism in the loan agreements to do it. But at the end of the day, you're arguing one subjective valuation against another subjective valuation. You know, will these lenders super amortize the loans or basically call the loans? This is where I think Blackstone works it out with the lenders. The mothership has a very strong interest in maintaining good relationship with the lenders. The lenders, which are part, which have investment banking operations, have a very strong interest in maintaining a good relationship with Blackstone. There will be negotiations and discussions and accommodations. But will they increase Blackstone's borrowing capacity to make further loans into, you know, further construction loans into markets that on the office side are already oversupplied, mostly, you know, like I think a lot of us would agree with that. And on the multifamily side also might be oversupplied. So that's where there could be a liquidity problem for Blackstone, where it might find itself with borrowers who've already part, I mean, most of the the 2.7 billion in uh, loan commitments, we understand that these loans are already, for the most part, partially drawn. So that's important because if you're a developer and you know you're looking at how the economics of the situation have changed, and you know you've only spent a few million dollars of your own money on you know plans, approvals. I mean, maybe several million more on the site. You might say, okay, you know what? 
I would be throwing good money after bad if I, you know, if I pursue this project. But the thing is, if you've already drawn on some of your construction loans, you know, the, the incentives change. It's like, well, you know what? I'm not going to get like, I'm going to lose, you know, I've had to put in more money because, you know, you're putting in additional equity as you proceed with the construction. You're like, so you could be looking at it and saying, well, I put in a lot of money now and I'm going to lose it unless I finish this project. And it's somebody else's money largely financing this. If I continue to draw on my construction loans, and that's really the only hope I have of getting made whole. So fuck it. You know, I'm going to keep drawing. So that's, that's the problem that Blackstone potentially faces there is that the, the borrowers to whom it has these commitments that they will draw on those commitments. And by the same token, Blackstone's not getting repaid enough on its existing loans and cash flowing on, you know, on interest payments to an extent where it's able to come up with the additional cash to make those loans especially in an environment where it's bankers, you know, are probably going to be having some very, you know, we think are going to be having some very difficult discussions with the mortgage trust and probably the mothership. How do you assess the risk? And this is the risk, not for Blackstone, but the risk to your bear case that the mothership basically bails Blackstone mortgage trust out. It re-equitizes you know, its own deals with Black BMXT, if it has deals, I don't, I don't know. Or, you know, it makes some phone calls to all the other people on, on the private equity Wall Street to put equity in the deal, to put in non-economic interest rate hedges, to hedge the risk of interest rates rising when the Fed has basically told you that they, they're done. And in order to improve the cash flow of the deal, because I think, you know, Blackstone, they have a trillion under management, they have a blue chip brand. And I think they you know, might want to spend as much money as possible to ha- not have this be a PR disaster of having it actually fail because that would you know, impair its brand. So how, how would you assess that risk of, okay, Carson, you're absolutely right on the fundamentals, but you know, Blackstone is going to bail out, the mothership was going to bail out the, the problem child. Well, but again, do they bail out the lenders or the lenders and the equity holders? I mean, I would argue that, I mean, the, the price tag for bailing out the equity holders, you know, would be substantially higher or would increase, you know, would increase the cost substantially. So what's, you know, what's the upside, you know, on doing that versus the cost? I mean, you could be talking, I mean, if they, if they have to fund, if they have to fund Blackstone, the mothership has to fund the dividend. I mean, does that basically become, you know, does that become expected of, you know, all Blackstone publicly traded products in the future? So I don't, I mean, I don't think, you know, and then it, then it creates problems. So if, you know, some of their LBOs, you know, go south and the equity, you know, the equity investors are going to get zeroed, I mean, they turn around and say, hey, you know, you bailed out the shareholders of BXMT, like bail us out. Like, I just, I would be very surprised. I would be very surprised if BX you know, actually bails out the equity holders here. Yeah, BX is the the mothership Blackstone. BX is the mothership. Now, again, if you're a lender, I think you'll work it out because each side has a strong interest in maintaining business with the other. But yeah, I just, I don't see, I don't see the case uh, for BX to bail out the shareholders of BXMT. So I would not want to be in the equity of BXMT you're much better off being a creditor to BXMT. 
I hear you. And again, my thinking is much more just on the PR sort of emotional side, but I'm thinking there are, look, there are a lot of individual investors who own BXMT who rely on the dividend. They're, they, they have a non-zero percentage of what, you know, if a sales salesperson calls them to become a private wealth Blackstone client, they would say yes. If BXMT goes down, that chance goes to zero. So I don't know. It could be a risk. But, but tell me about the dividend. Like, do you, do you think the dividend is not sustainable and it pays a, I'll look it up right now, a, a dividend? How much of that is, is able to be funded from the, the true earnings? I think they say something like 126%. Oh, no, no, have- no, no. So that, that's actually really interesting. So they, they talk about, I mean, that's a non-GAAP measure when they, you know, when they talk about their, their dividend coverage ratio. But what's really interesting is that with the Q3 results presentation, for the first time, there's a disclosure. I think it's slide 37 from memory, but that's where they trump that, oh, 126% dividend coverage ratio. They disclose in the fine print there on that slide that only 27% of the dividend is covered by gap income. So when we look at that, that, that su- the sudden appearance of that disclosure, we think to ourselves, okay, you know, they're getting worried. They're, they've gone to council and council has said, yeah, you know, like there's going to, there's going to be some litigation around this later on. You want to be able to point, you know, to disclosure like that and say, well, you know, we warned that, you know, this is, that there are different ways of looking at the dividend coverage ratio. And if you looked at it on a gap income basis, well, then you would know that the dividend was at risk. So, you know, we, we think that's a, to us, that's a classic CYA risk disclosure. And the fact that it suddenly appeared in the Q3 results to us is, is pretty telling. So, yeah, I mean, the, depends, on, depends on where rates are, depends on, you know, which is going to influence sponsor behavior and also the, you know, the amount by which the borrowers are unable to make the payments on their own. But, you know, what we, but we see significant cuts to the dividend showing up in second half, you know, no later than the second half of next year. What's it like being short a stock where the dividend is 10%, where presumably you have to, you know, if the stock is flat for a year, you're down 10%. Right. Well, you know, fortunately, you know, so, so what a lot of people don't understand is kind of how we, how we run our position. So, you know, the Blackstone closed down, BXMT closed down 8% the day that we went public. So, you know, we shorted it at a, you know, at a much lower dividend yield than where it closed that day. Now, it's gone up some since. But here's the thing. Those have all been beta moves. And so what we've, you know, what we do is we run our positions market neutral. So we have a, we have a hedge basket against the position. So Blackstone, BXMT has generally underperformed that hedge basket. So while BXMT has popped back up because of beta, you know, most days the hedge basket has actually gone up more than BXMT. So, you know, like there've been a few people on Twitter trying to troll me like, oh, how's that short feel? And it's like, yeah, actually we just made another 80 basis points uh, on the position today because it underperformed by 80 bips. So yeah, it feels great. So that's, so we're, we're also getting, we're also getting some cash flow from our hedge there. You know, I think it's it's a difficult it's you know when we when we talk to when we go public with the thesis like i want to be clear we're not saying to people hey you should go in short xyz mm-hmm. we're really ta- trying to talk to the longs and we're trying to say there there's some things here that you're missing that are important so 
you know, would 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 it make sense to short a BXMT without some sort of beta hedge? No. I mean, then you'd be super directional on rates, basically. Yeah. Like, no, don't do that. But, you know, if you do it the way that we do it, then, and you're, you know, and you understand risk management and you're experienced short seller, blah, 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 you know, then it's, you know, then, then it's not the same proposition as saying like, oh yeah, like I'm just going to go short BXMT. Got it. So you're, you're not short BXMT, you're short the spread of really BXMT relative to the other basket of comparable mortgage reads. So you really think it is BXMT that has these issues, not particularly well, other ones, maybe. Not just, no. It's so, so the way that we, you know, separate conversation, but the way that we yeah. construct our hedges. So we, we generally, against each short position, will be long a basket of 30 to 50 names. Oh, wow. That's and cool. so the way that we get long that basket is we have software that identifies the factors, you know, that are, that are behind, you know, the beta movements of a given stock. And so then the, the hedge baskets, so if the factor software says, okay, you know, this is, you know, 30% financials and 20 real estate and, you know, 10%, you know, like a U.S., you know, U.S. mid caps, then we construct a hedge basket. We work with the counterparty to construct a hedge basket of 30 to 50 names that mirror those factors. So, you know, like I, I, I don't offhand. I don't know what's what's in the hedge basket. There's probably a little bit of mortgage read in there, but you know, probably some banks, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not, you know, we don't have, you know, we're not long certain more, you know, we're not long mortgage reads against BXMT as a short. The factor basket hedge is basically is what it what it is that we're long. Got it. Final question: Could you could you briefly summarize your view? And I think one thing we haven't discussed is specifically how it relates to the Fed, you, you said something in your report about how unless there's no recession and the Fed cuts to three and a half percent, I think you have a bear case. Yeah. In summary, the problem that BXMT has is that it appears a substantial majority of borrowers in its U.S. book are unable to make uh, to service their debt, which is interest only, absent rate swaps. A lot of these rate swaps, we estimate about $16 billion of rate swaps are going to be terminating in 2024, and that's on a loan book of $23 billion. Now, Blackstone has pointed out that in the last 12 months, about $12 billion of rate swaps terminated, and that only about 5% of its interest income right now is PIC. But it also pointed out that I think approximately 5% of the interest income was made up of sponsors kicking in equity. So right now, what we're looking on a look back on a backward looking basis, it looks like about 10% of Blackstone's loan book is already showing signs of stress. But we think that the signs of stress or actual distress, real distress will show up in the loan book next year, especially in the back half of 24. As to rates, if the Fed suddenly cut and SOFR went to 350 basis points and there was no weakening of the economic of, of the economy, that's the only way out. Okay. If like, you know, tomorrow the Fed cuts to three or basically Fed cuts and SOFR's at 350. Like that's the only way we see out of this for Blackstone without significant dividend cuts. Now, here's the thing. 
because rate cuts are not a panacea. You need to focus on that second part here of what I said, which is without significant economic weakening. The Fed will cut down to 350, you know, sooner than anticipated, only because there's economic weakness. Now, economic weakness is not good for commercial landlords, whether they they be in office or multifamily or retail. So for the Fed to cut that quick, that far, that fast, that would imply that these landlords are already suffering additional strains because of a weak economic environment. So we just see very little chance that Blackstone gets out of 2024 without real deterioration in its loan book. Carson Block, thanks so much for joining us and thanks everyone for watching. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.